Today we are covering two passages that are um, directly connected through the words of Jesus himself. Many people, when they begin to understand that the Bible uses poetry and symbolism, they begin to question, well, how far can you take it and what can you bank on? And what you can bank on is the scripture itself. Every explicit mention of intentional symbolism is, uh, it's like a bedrock foundation. You can build your house upon it. For example, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says why the things happened to Israel was so, the things that happened to Israel in in the wilderness were to be for us an example that we should fear the Lord and turn from idols. And so, um, you know, this passage is a very small section in the Old Testament. Um, it's very concise. It's Really, it's only uh, five verses, but I put the first three verses of Numbers 21 in there intentionally to give some contrast to what takes place in those five verses, um, or six verses, uh, sorry. And this, this passage describes a condition that is in each of our hearts uh, at before we know the Lord and and even after we come to know the Lord, the grumbling and the complaining that uh, that are possible to come from each one of us, what is the solution for that and and we 're going to look at what Jesus says is the solution to those grumblings and complainings and so I wanted to look at um, John 3 today, because we've been going through during our time in Lent, we've been working backwards through the book of John, looking at the miracles, but also the teachings of Jesus, specifically around this idea of light and darkness. If you remember during uh, the first week of Lent, uh, we actually talked about how Lent itself is a word that comes from the German, it just means for elongating. And the reason Lent is celebrated in the spring is because just like with Christ arriving, the celebration of his birth and incarnation, light entered the world. We celebrate that at, uh, uh, in December, right after, a few days after the solstice, as my father uh, alluded to this morning in Sunday school. Um, just like that, Lent is put in the spring because the days are lengthening and the amount of light is growing. One of the things that happened already in Lent is we moved from daylight savings time or Eastern daylight time into Eastern savings time because we wanted to set up a day where we have more daylight hours in a normal clock, if you will. Um, A little bit of interesting history. In the Middle Ages, some, some cultures actually had the same number of days or the same number of hours in the light and the darkness. And so hours themselves used to be movable. What a weird idea that is to us with our digital clocks. But Lent is practiced in the spring. It's, it's observed in the spring because the days are, in, are becoming more filled with light. And that's what we've been talking about. We, we focused heavily on the blind man in John 9 and looking at what, um, what that tells about, what that, what that story tells us about those who are spiritually blind. And that analogy carries into today's um, passage. Right at the beginning, um, we see that take place, and that is the context for understanding who Nicodemus is as a Pharisee and how Jesus responds to him, and the, the entire scenarios that we've been looking about with spiritual darkness being brought, having your eyes being opened by God, 
into spiritual seeing, how is that made possible? So that's what we want to look at today. There's a number of questions and answers that Nicodemus and Jesus go through. Then Jesus, after addressing Nicodemus for about 15 verses, he moves into a more focused teaching time or a treatise, if you will, on the nature of salvation and the plan of redemption as being a rescue from our darkness and hatred of God, rather than God being the evil meanie who comes and judges. And in the midst of that, we're going to see how that scenario, that situation, is actually made, God, God bringing mercy, that's actually made possible through him being lifted up. And I think verse 9 is, is extremely helpful there. And then after that, we're going to look at three separate prophets, how they describe things that are, uh, that are necessary to understand why Jesus says he is the fiery bronze serpent in the wilderness. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. As I alluded to earlier, we know that those who walk at night in the book of John are, the, and I, whenever you encounter someone walking at night, in the book of John, that is a statement from the gospel writer from John saying, this person is living in darkness. They, they, are, they are not able to see. Uh, over and over again, Jesus in the, the weeks, in, in the last few weeks, we've seen Jesus saying, while it's still day, let us do the works of God for night is coming and no one can work. In another passage, he says that those who walk around in darkness do not have the light in them. And so Nicodemus coming at night is a very intentional phrase. It, it must be understood that Jesus is saying that he cannot see. If you remember the passage of the blind man, um, it, it becomes apparent what Jesus means in verse 3. But Nicodemus uh, is most probably uh, coming to Jesus at night for a few reasons. One, he is afraid. He's under the influence of peer pressure for the Pharisees, had declared that anyone who would follow Christ would be put out of the synagogues. And so Nicodemus is one who is filled with the fear of man rather than a, a, seeking to get right with God's truth and, and, and hear from and learn from God's messenger. And so Nicodemus, although he is coming to Christ, he's doing so in such a way that it won't cost him very much if the transaction doesn't stick if it, as it were. If this is true, Nicodemus is not a fearer of God, but rather a fearer of man. And so immediately we begin to see, yes, he's walking at night. He's also doing it in the cover of darkness where his deeds won't be exposed. But then he goes on to ask Jesus uh, some questions. Before he does that, he kind of starts with a greeting. John 3, 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus does not bite on the, uh, you know, kind of puffing up greeting. He doesn't even address whether he's a teacher alone or something greater than a teacher, but he directly rebukes Nicodemus by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Remember that the, the language of night, those who walk at night are blind. Jesus then says, you cannot see the kingdom of God. If you could see, you would recognize that I'm more than a teacher. Nicodemus immediately begins to respond with doubts, and these doubts uh, demonstrate the incredulity or the lack of ability to believe that Nicodemus is filled with. 
You see, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He is supposed to know the word of God, to have spiritual life in himself, to be a, he's a shepherd of Israel, he's a teacher of Israel. And in this place, Nicodemus responds to the very word of God himself with nothing but doubt and the inability to believe. Those are two things. He's already predisposed to natural-minded thinking, and he's slow to believe. He's not quick to believe, as we see in John 4, when Jesus is interacting with the Samaritan woman. She immediately recognizes that he comes from God and that he's speaking the word of God and, and realizes that he's more than just a prophet. And yet here, Nicodemus, the one who is supposed to be closest to God, he, he has no ability to even hear from the Lord himself. Nicodemus responds, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus cannot at all understand the words of God because he is natural-minded. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says that the, the natural mind or the mindset on the flesh cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. They can't comprehend them. They can't understand them. And so when Nicodemus hears Jesus saying, you must be born again, Nicodemus starts to revert to his manner of righteousness. What can I do in my own place? If you notice verse 4, again, Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time? See, Nicodemus is thinking about what he must do to be born. But think about the analogy. Jesus says you're born again. You're not born originally by the act of your will, are you? Were you consulted before you were brought into life? No, (laughs) you weren't. You were brought into life through the act of your parents uh, with uh, the superintention of God creating another life. We call that procreation. Uh, The reason it is deemed procreation is because of the the idea that God himself is uh, expanding his creation through his creation itself. And in the midst of this, Nicodemus hears God in the flesh, Jesus Christ saying, you must be born again, and he begins to think, what can I do to make that take place? Jesus explains that it's not by man's effort. Verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. He then encourages Nicodemus, do not marvel, don't get hung up in your own thought patterns, but rather receive and understand the wisdom of God. Just as a child's not born of its own will, so are those who are born of the Spirit. They're not born by their own will, but rather they are born totally through the work of God. This puts to rest any debate concerning whether it was you who began to seek God or whether God came and got you first. You cannot choose to come into existence through the natural birth nor through being born of the Spirit. Therefore, we must totally rely upon the grace that God gives through the gospel. Likewise, one does not baptize himself. Jesus alludes to this through being born of water. One does not baptize himself, but rather comes to the church. We have our wonderful brother, Fawn, who's getting baptized today. It would be a heresy of the deepest severity if Fawn went out and said, I alone am sufficient to baptize myself, and he just jumps down in the water and then comes back up. That'd be ridiculous. 
And you all know that would be ridiculous. But what does baptism tell us? You do not come to God on your own, but rather you receive and partake in the salvation that he brings to you. You hear the message of the gospel, you respond through the Holy Spirit recreating you, making you, as it were, born again, and then from there you follow in, in life through going through baptism. This is what Jesus is saying. You must be born of the Spirit. It, it is not a, your own effort that accomplishes you, your, your salvation. Jesus says that the wind blows where it wishes. The wind does not consult man where it goes. It doesn't ask man, hey, I'm, should, I, should the north wind blow south today? None of that is consulted. The wind blows where it wishes, so likewise the Holy Spirit moves on those that God deems to rescue. John uh, 3, 8 through 9, the wind blows where it wishes, you hear the sound, but you do not know where it goes or where it comes from. And Nicodemus then says again, how can these things be? Nicodemus hears the word of the Lord from God in the flesh himself, Jesus Christ. And in this place, Nicodemus still does not understand. Now, I think that God is working through this question in verse 9. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Think about this. Nicodemus earlier asked, how can someone see the kingdom? At first, he comes to Jesus to to consult with him, and uh, he does it at night, and Jesus says that he can't see, and he can't see specifically the kingdom. Nicodemus then asks questions. Okay, you're, you're telling me, Jesus, that I cannot see the things of God or the kingdom of God, and, and how would I be able to see? And then Nicodemus moves on after hearing Jesus tell him how he must be able to see. That is, your blindness would be removed. This is Jesus doing this wonderful thing called a mixed metaphor. Your blindness will be removed by you being born again. Jesus then says that you must be born again from the Spirit. Nicodemus responds to that. Again, he doesn't understand. How, can the, how is it possible that these things take place? I believe that the rest of the chapter is about answering the question, how can these things take place? How is it that someone can be born again by the Spirit of God? What makes it that possible? I think that Jesus then moves on to explain how it's possible that people can be born again. Yes, we just covered that they are born again by the Spirit, not by their own effort, but what is the manner in which, what is the mechanism by which God's redemption is opened up to men who are dead and blind and, and full of uh, in, inability, that is, to produce any righteousness of their own or to come to God on their own? How is it possible and Nicodemus' question, though filled with doubt, provides for us a chance to see God explain how is the new birth made possible? How can these things be? Jesus responds <clears throat> in verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be, be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus explains exactly how these things can take place because the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, of course, Jesus at this point had not yet uh, given the Holy Spirit because he was not yet glorified, but he also had not given the Holy Spirit because he had not yet gone to the cross and done, as it were, being lifted up. And I believe that Jesus' reference to the fiery serpent, along with, as we're going to look in at the end here, um, the understanding of what the prophets have to say, that the lifting up of Jesus Christ is what 
makes it possible, uh, what makes possible the salvation that he gives to each one of us. And, and so <clears throat> Jesus moves on to explain the reasoning for the, the salvation that God wishes to bring. Through the lifting up of the Son of Man, a, ma- a way is made available to those who would believe in him that they may have eternal life instead of eternal death, that they would be able to see the kingdom of God instead of being blind. Now, Jesus begins at this point, after referencing the serpent in the wilderness, to explain the motivation in God's heart for bringing salvation to a people who otherwise do not deserve it in any manner. Um, the most quoted Bible verse in the world, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, is often hijacked out of context away from the rest of the verses. Now, I would submit to you that that verse is a wonderful, beautiful truth, and we do not change, alter, or abolish it in any way. But it must be tempered with understanding the rest of the verses that uh, succeed it. Um, These verses explain that not only is God loving, but he also is the one who is fixing the problem. Most men, uh, most most of mankind, if, if you will, most men and women, they, they hear about a Jesus who saves from their sins, and they think, okay, that's, that's great if I want to become a Christian, but if I don't want to become a Christian, what then? And the minister or preacher then says, well, God judges those who don't receive his son, and they think, oh, well, that's like a horrible idea. I can't tolerate a God of wrath or a God of judgment. But this, this teaching from God himself, Jesus Christ in the flesh, being faithfully recorded by the author, uh, John the, the Apostle tells us specifically that God is the remedy, not the problem. You see, people who are afraid of God's wrath, they believe, well, if, if there's a wrathful God, then I've got to do something to get rid of that wrathful God or else I'm in trouble. And yet it's this place that God himself dis- uh, explains that he is the solution to the problem, not the problem. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son... So God wishes to repair the situation that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's great news and that's terrible news because of the next few verses. God didn't send Jesus in to accomplish a judgment as he about is, is going to uh, proclaim in the next few verses, he actually came to undo the judgment that's already come on all of mankind. Jesus didn't come to condemn because the world already was condemned. God had over and over again in the Old Testament shown how desperately sinful and wicked man was time and time again. And man himself, through history, through, the, through him conquering other nations, through him being subjected and subjecting others and putting violence in every place that he would go, had already shown that apart from a a mighty act of redemption, a complete change of course, a recreation from the core, without that, mankind is destined to calamity and, and damnation. Not just from what God will bring on those who remain in their sin and continue to rebel, but also from what they're going to do to each other. You see, the, sal- the gospel salvation that is, that is promoted by the New Testament is not just removing the wrath from, from those who exist uh, in, under God's wrath. It is that, as Romans 1 and 2 make plain, but it also 
is the fact, it, it, it includes that the wrath will be removed out of their hearts, that, that the evil and the sin that, uh, that makes them lash out against others, that too is being removed. You see, God is wrathful. The Bible tells us explicitly that God's wrath is uh, right and just, and that in this way, God does not wish for those who are under his wrath to go off towards destruction, but rather he has taken it on himself to repair and to redeem. You see, we as man, we blame God for being wrathful, but we ourselves, we were the one who rebelled against his rule. We were the one, ones who started the war, as it were. God sends his son into the world not to condemn, but to save then, G- then Jesus builds on that idea. That's one half of the coin. If you present people with the gospel, Jesus came to die for your sins, and God doesn't want to destroy any, but rather he loves, that is one half of the coin. And if you don't give them both sides of the picture, it really doesn't make any sense. God is here to save you from your sins. Jesus died on the cross. Why do I care? The reason you care is because Jesus, in verse 18, explains, in verse 18 and verse 19, explains why it is necessary for you to not be condemned by the work of Christ in his first coming and not be condemned through the judgment that that comes at his second coming. Verse 18, for whoever believes in him is is not condemned. Amen, hallelujah. That's usually the part of the gospel that we bring. But the next portion is just as important. Jesus doesn't end the chapter. He doesn't move on to the next subject. He then, in the same breath, says that those who don't believe are condemned already because they do not believe in the name of the only Son of God. Now, I would, sub- I would submit that most of us, because of our own foolishness and opinions, think that this idea is ridiculous, that all mankind is condemned already. But that is how beautiful the gospel is. All mankind through Adam went astray and rebelled against God's authority. And through that and their own sins have continually warred against God's authority and destroyed the image of God that remained in them, and they rebelled against him. That is the beginning. And the, re- the remedy for that is God saying, I want my children back. I will send my son. And the son comes for what reason? To be lifted up. Verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the life, than the light because their works were evil. Jesus explains that God, who is the most beautiful, uh, the most uh, admirable, the most to be treasured, that could ever be imagined, man is so evil that in the midst of seeing God in the flesh, the light of the world coming into the world, they would rather remain in their darkness and keep their eyes from looking upon him. That's what the gospel says. It says that Jesus Christ came on a mercy mission from God because of the Father's love for the world. And Jesus, in the midst of coming, The world doesn't receive him, but rather they remain in the darkness because they would rather not have their deeds exposed, but remain in the darkness because what they do is evil. 
Those who rejected his son already were condemned before his son had even come. In that, all were already condemned. Now, that's not a very popular interpretation of the gospel, but it's the only one that I see in the Bible. All those who were in Adam were already condemned to both a natural and spiritual death, but those who believe in the Son of God escape eternal punishment, the sentence of death being executed upon Christ in our place or in our stead. That is the gospel that Jesus Christ came to be lifted up so that those who would believe in him would not have death but eternal life. Now, when, what is the opposite of eternal life? Let's go back to the most quoted verse in all of the the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What, What would have happened had God not loved the world? Well, all those who would receive eternal life would not receive eternal life. The opposite of eternal life is eternal death, which is the destiny of all before Christ comes to intervene. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What is the opposite of not believing in Christ? The opposite is doubting, distrusting, not following, not submitting, not receiving, but rather rejecting. And those who don't receive eternal life already have a sentence on them that is eternal death, that they brought on themselves through their own sin. Now, this is an amazing redemption that God has has accomplished for us. And yet, we preach a gospel that is open to the accusation that God is the problem, that God in his wrath is the thing that we need to put under a a bushel or hide or not bring up, that we need to present a Jesus who is all love and no judgment. But Jesus, in his own words, says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love their darkness rather than the light. God those who uh, promulgate that God is, is wrong in sending his son to die, that those who would receive him uh, might have life and not death, <clears throat> they go on to say things like, who is God to not be a God of love, but rather be a God of wrath? Well, according to Jesus, he, he came and he brought a solution. And the judgment on sin is the revelation of how sinful sin is. As in, Paul at one point says, through the law, sin took advantage to show that it was utterly sinful. Through the gospel, Jesus comes and he demonstrates that the wickedness of man is so wicked that even when presented with amazing light and beauty and the very Son of God himself, man kept his eyes in the shadows rather than turning to a possible remedy. That's what it means when Jesus says, this is the judgment. As in God comes and God is God, and the men who are filled with darkness don't even turn their eyes, but rather they fear being exposed. This is what John the Baptist testifies to at the end of the chapter. For time's sake, I I haven't included the rest of John 3, although I, I do believe it's important if you wish to build in your understanding the idea that um, we covered uh, three weeks ago, the idea that every fact shall be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Here we see John the Baptist saying the exact same things as Jesus, authenticating that this is the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God. 
John, uh, to summarize what he says in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, contrast those two, believing and obeying are the same. Not obeying is not believing. The Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is what Paul argues in, in Romans. See, the wrath of God is on those, all of those who have rebelled, Following after their father, Adam, they have deepened and continued and worsened the rebellion against God, and the wrath of God is already on them. It doesn't come when Jesus comes. The wrath of God is already on those who rebel against God and rebel against his created order and created plan and seek to establish their own kingdoms and be their own gods. The the wrath of God is already on them, and Jesus Christ comes to do nothing but remove The wrath of God remains on all those who do not turn to Christ because the wrath of God is already on them. The evaluation doesn't come at uh, the time that Jesus arrives. The evaluation, the judgment, already took place, and it took place in Genesis 3. Just as Adam rebelled against God's will and overthrew his authority because he was not content with his position, so we also see the nation of Israel, the people of God, doing the exact same thing, and that's where we turn to Numbers 21. The reason I included the first three verses of Numbers 21 was to set the context for the people of Israel rebelling. Uh, God manifested himself, if you remember the book of Exodus, time and time again it mentions the cloud of smoke and the pillar of fire. God manifests himself as a cloud of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night and leads Israel out of Egypt after accomplishing these amazing cataclysmic uh, apocalyptic scenario uh, kind of plagues, totally demolishing their military, their economy, their culture. In, in fact, if, if you ever get a chance to study art history, there's even evidence in the writings and the hieroglyphs uh, um, of Egypt that there was actually you know, time, a time where their whole civilization was diminished to a low and you know, kind of base uh, level of culture and that they went through this, these huge number of plagues. And, um, and then after this, there's a time of renaissance, if you will, in Egypt. But God accomplishes this amazing salvation for Israel. He brings her out of a land where she is uh, in slavery, serving and chasing after the, the idols and gods of Egypt. And in this place... He provides for her through the wilderness as he's bringing her to the promised land. He, he establishes for them military intervention time and again. He tells them that their sandals and their tents will not wear out on the journey. He provides from them manna from heaven and quail and also water that comes out of the desert. God is moving in miraculous ways. It is just grace after grace after grace. And yet the people of Israel grumble and complain. Just like Adam was not content with his position, but rather he chose to allow and then enter into Eve's taking of the fruit, he then took the fruit and ate as well. And just like Adam rebelled against God's given command and dispensed grace, that is, Adam had the right to eat from any tree in the garden except that one, just like that, Israel rebels and grumbles against God's provision. It says that they disliked their food. 
Though God had brought Israel out of Egypt, he provided for them all the things we just mentioned, and the Lord in this place brings judgment on his people. If you don't have a a doctrine of theology that allows God to bring judgment on his people, you cannot read any of the Bible, but mostly not the Old Covenant, and any portions of of Acts uh, that deal with either Ananias and Sapphira or Simon Magnus or uh, Herod or even the uh, emperors and leaders of Rome and the Pharisees who get into trouble time and again. So if you'd like, I can lend you some scissors. I have two pairs at my house. But if you don't have a God of wrath, you cannot read your scriptures because a God of wrath is a God of judgment. And it's clear that God is constantly judging throughout all the scripture. God brings a judgment on his people after not only they rebel against him, but they also grumble and complain against Moses. It says in verse 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. So they, they rebel against God's provision. They also rebel against God's authority that he had placed over them. And in this place, God brings a judgment. Verse 6, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. This is a judgment that leads to at least physical death. I don't think it's implying or I don't think you need, need to assert that because they died in the wilderness um, that those people were damned in any way. I don't think that's necessary to believe. But it is a judgment of God to bring death on his people. And the reason he brings death on his people is to prevent them from further wrongdoing and going off into idolatry. And so this judgment is a limiting of God from people going astray even further than what they've gone. What is the, you know, you can discuss intention of God's judgment, but God's judgment is always done in the context of mercy and limiting evil. And in this place, there is an immediate reaction that the people of God, God uh, produce or, or that's produced in them. And this is the key to understanding the intention of God's judgment. What's the immediate response of of Israel being disciplined by Yahweh? They acknowledge and confess their sin, which leads to repentance and petitioning of Moses that, that Moses himself would petition God. You see, Israel had rebelled against God himself. They had rebelled against his provision. They had rebelled against his uh, proscribed authority, and they're judged. What is the uh, remedy for that? The remedy is that they go and reassert and re-honor Moses by going to him and asking him to go to God. They, in their repentance, they make right what was damaged in a way, not perfectly, of course. We still need God to intervene. And Moses prays to the Lord. God, of course, uh, understands what's going to take place So after verse 7, in which they they come to Moses, they say, we have sinned. They acknowledge their sin. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. They acknowledge the components of their rebellion. And in that place, they petition Moses to pray so that God would, would save them from their calamity, which they brought upon themselves. This is the gospel in nine verses in Numbers. God, having intended to bring his people back to himself, has already a prescribed means of salvation. He says to Moses, in verse 8, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. 
Verse 9, so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, it is, it is clear from this text that the people of God are the ones who brought upon the judgment themselves. Even though God carried out the judgment, the judgment was brought by their sin. And in this place, God makes a remedy possible. He says to Moses, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole. Now, that seems kind of weird. Some people might even call that shamanism, but those people don't understand what God's doing. God is teaching his people through a sign and through a symbol the necessity of salvation coming from him for their calamity. It's an apocalyptic uh, scene here, but I would like you to notice verse 8 and verse 9, what God instructs and what Moses does, just like we saw earlier with John the Baptist in John 3.36, who does not believe, uh, everyone who believes in the Son is saved, those who do not obey the Son, judgment remains on them, believe and obey are the same thing. So also, this happens in verse 8 and verse 9, the Lord says to Moses, make a fiery serpent, Verse 9, so Moses made a bronze serpent. Now, this is a very puzzling idea if you're not familiar with what what you would call apocalyptic or uh, poetic language. But I want to submit that Jesus' intentional reference of being lifted up just like the serpent in the wilderness is uh, tied together through the prophets Uh, specifically through their beginning revelations that they have, which we're going to cover three of today. Uh, We're going to cover Ezekiel, Daniel, and John the Revelator. When Ezekiel in exile is commissioned to to be a prophet, God opens his eyes to look into the heavens. Ezekiel, if you remember the story, Ezekiel 1. If you don't, I encourage you to go read it. It's the best, uh, it's probably the scariest chapter in, uh, in maybe the major prophets because it's just a very amazing, terrifying scene of the glory and holiness of God. Um, By the banks of the Kebar Canal, a a water source, he sees fiery angels, he sees the spirit as a whirlwind of fire and cloud, and he sees a man of fire on the throne with light all around him, okay? I want you to try to hold that, those tokens in your in your memory for just a second he's by a water source he's being com- he first he's being commissioned by god to be a prophet he's by a water source he sees fiery angels and fire in the heavens he's seeing the throne room because god's opened his eyes and then he sees a man of fire on the throne and light all around him and and in this passage he mentions fire and brass or bronze that's polished Daniel is in exile. He's already been commissioned as a prophet. He has an encounter on the Tigris River, which is almost certainly a a Christophany. He sees in his vision a man who is dressed in white with eyes uh, of of fire and arms and legs that are as burnished bronze. Burnishing is a process of polishing bronze, and you do that. uh, Today, you can probably do it with just mechanical means, but in in the past, you had to fire up uh, bronze in heat so that while you're polishing it, it's in a malleable state, malleable state. But when bronze is in the fire, it burns brighter and brighter than, than anything you could really imagine. Uh, if you've ever seen guys who weld, guys who work with you know, metal, they have to wear shields and with special, uh, I think, cobalt uh, lenses so that their eyes aren't burnt out of their sockets. 
because of how bright and intense the heat and the light is. And then John the Revelator, in exile on the island of Patmos, again surrounded by water, has an encounter which he sees the glorified Christ. In this vision, the Son of Man has a golden sash, just like in Ezekiel 1, it says that, uh, that he had a, a golden uh, waistband, like the gold of uh, some region, I forget. He has white hair, fiery eyes, and feet like brass, glowing in a furnace. These are the exact same visions, same, same metaphors, same images, same realities that God is opening up his prophets to. And these are all about vi- visions of Jesus Christ in his glorified state. That's what John the Revelator is seeing after Jesus has been raised to the heavens. Uh, but what Ezekiel and Daniel are seeing in Christ's either pre-incarnate state or they're seeing by the Spirit to his glorified future state. Either way, Jesus is glorified at this moment, and he is fiery, and he is bronzy. Okay? Get those two ideas together. Taking these glorious encounters with the statement of Christ together, we properly understand that the fiery bronze serpent on the pole is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ, when he references this passage, he does not say that I am going to be glorified just when I ascend to the Father, but he says, I will be glorified when I am lifted up. Not only is Jesus Christ glorified in his heavenly state, he was glorified by being lifted up for us. John 12, 23 through 24, this is right at the beginning of the Passion section of John, when the Greeks come to Jesus, Jesus takes account of the scene and says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus Christ is saying, my glory is not just a a heavenly apocalyptic scene in which there's fiery glory and the holiness of God is on display with the rainbow around the throne and the angels singing, the spirit attending. That is not just my glory, but for God stepping into humanity to redeem his people from their sin, to remove the wrath off of them, the glory that Jesus Christ declares for himself is a glory of blood and beating and a death on a cross. That's what Jesus says. Now is the hour has come for the Son of Man to be what? Glorified. And it is intentionally the same word. The glory bronze fiery image is Jesus saying, yes, I am glorious. Yes, I am holy. Yes, I am powerful. It is a terrible thing to see into the heavens with just natural man's eyes. But rather, I'm not just a God who's far and away. I am a God who comes and meets your problems. I am a God who enters into, takes on your flesh, and takes the wrath from above you and removes it and places it on myself. That's what Jesus is saying when he's saying, I am glorying in this death that a grain of wheat will fall into the earth, die and be redeemed, resurrected. This is what we proclaim every week when we celebrate and glory in and treasure the death of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God himself in the flesh, glorying in, removing wrath so that he could be lifted up so that you could be born again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask you that you would train us and teach us in the way to understand your scriptures. Lord, we pray that you would give to us the beauty of making connections in your word, that we would know your word, that we would not be ignorant of what you have to say 
Lord, we ask you that you would train us in, in seeing uh, the words of Christ and the apostles in the New Testament when they reference things from the Old Testament, that we would understand what they mean and that we would see a beautiful, wonderful, compassionate God who does not wish for us to remain in judgment, but rather has come to redeem. Lord, we pray that all of those who are in our midst, who are plagued by habitual sins, doubts, fears, anxieties, sexual sins, shame, greediness, pride, all of us who are bitten by those fiery serpents, that we would, in our moments of weakness, look to you and see you as a glorious God who does not glory just in his position of heavenly authority and power, but glories in coming and displaying the love that he has in himself. God, we ask you that you would give us a faith that is comfortable with your wrath, that where we submit our opinion of who you should be to your word and to what you've revealed about yourself. Lord, we ask you that we would honor the word of Christ, what he says of himself concerning his own judgment that comes at the end of the age, that we all would escape that by looking unto you now. Lord, we ask that those in our midst, if anyone is, is like Nicodemus, only coming to you in secret, only seeking after you, if they don't have to commit too much, Lord, we ask that you would cause a miracle to take place, that you would birth them again by your spirit. Lord, we agree with your son's word, what he said specifically that that you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Lord, we confess that without your aid, we are helpless. But God, we know that you are faithful and you are just. You wish to redeem, you wish to save. Lord, we ask that today, you would redeem those in our midst who, who are far away from you. And Lord, for those who have placed their hope and trust in you, we ask you, God, that we would accept what your word says concerning who you are as a God of love and a God of judgment. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.